then to Zechariah once again. It's hard to know what to do in some of these things because there's quite a few people gone to these special meetings there in Illinois at the Brashears, but uh, Lord willing, there's enough overlap in these messages in Zechariah to that they'll be able to pick up where we've come, hopefully. Um, but we want to read today and enter into chapter 14 of Zechariah. You remember we've come up to the end of verse 9 in chapter 13. So let's read Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel, Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, O my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And people will live in it, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security." Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. And then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. We've been considering for some months now this great prophecy of Zechariah. And we've seen that even though Zechariah lived about 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, nevertheless, his great theme is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You might almost call this the gospel according to Zechariah. There's so much about Christ in here. Uh, Zechariah refers to Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and uh, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, and his piercing on the cross, and the scattering of the disciples uh, when the shepherd is smitten, and the opening of a fountain for sin, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it just goes on and on. There's so many things. Uh, that are referred to many, many other aspects of Christ's coming as we have seen over the past months, even beginning at chapter 1 and going all the way through. And we come now this morning to this great 14th chapter, the final chapter of Zechariah. And here, probably uh, more than anywhere in the whole book, we meet with a great cacophony of conflicting interpretations of uh, what this passage means, what this chapter means. Um, Probably the most popular modern view uh, relating to Zechariah 14, which is uh, the view that most of us grew up with or were taught, um, which is known as the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view. Uh, That's what I was, when I became a Christian, that's all that I was ever taught. It takes this chapter as being uh, a reference to physical Jerusalem in the future and the physical uh, battle that's going to take place, which is tied in with this battle of Armageddon, physical physical battle of Armageddon. Um, Adam Clark, one of the older commentators, he takes this as referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and uh, John Calvin, another uh, one of the Reformation commentators, uh, he takes this as referring to the calamities that fell on Jerusalem from the time of Zechariah up until the com- first coming of Christ. And so you see right there, two, three totally different views of this. Um, the popular view today is that verse 4 uh, I, get, I think you could still say it's a popular view because most people are just taught this you know, in general. Um, the popular view is that verse 4 is referring to Christ coming back and standing on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives literally splitting in two and um, a, a physical thing happening here. Uh, but again, I'll quote uh, an example here from Calvin. Here, here's what he says. He does not here promise a miracle such as even the ignorant might conceive to be literal. So here's his view of this splitting of the Mount of Olives. He he says that's not at all what's being spoken of. And uh, so we could go on and on. I could spend the whole morning giving quotes from different good men and godly men that are totally different as far as the meanings of this chapter. And I say all that just to say this. The point is, is that good and godly men have differed greatly on the meaning of these verses, and we need to be careful about being too dogmatic, and particularly we need to be careful about treating people who disagree with us as if they were heretics. And that's something that has uh, happened in, in, um, in the past hundred years, if we don't agree with a particular position, then that person is viewed as almost as a liberal or something like that. That's not right to do that. There are very good godly men right now living in this nation that are good Bible scholars that hold various positions on this scripture. And so uh, we need to be careful. 
But uh, what I want to do in this chapter and what I've tried to do throughout Zechariah is to deal with some of the solid scriptural certainties that are here that we have reiterated in the New Testament. And I want to present what seems to me to be the right approach to this, and uh, you can weigh it, but regardless of whether we have the details correct or the framework correct, there is still the basic truths we can still glean and profit from, the principles we can profit from. Um, So first of all, let me say this. It seems to me that even if these verses do refer to some past destruction of Jerusalem, like Calvin and Adam Clark and a lot of others have said, um, even if they do refer to some past destruction of Jerusalem, nevertheless, it seems to me that they foreshadow and uh, uh, give us a foretaste of something final and cataclysmic that's going to happen at the end of the age. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the language that you have down through here. Verse 5, the end of the verse. Then the Lord, oh my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. That's strong language. All the holy ones coming with the Lord. And again, in... uh, verse 6 and 7. In that day it will come about uh, that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Well, in the New Testament, you remember, there are several passages that speak, whether in figurative language or literally, I think mostly figurative, but it talks about these different things happening in the heavens and signs in the heavens and uh, the uh, stars and the moon uh, moon being turned to blood and such things as that. So, again, it seems to fit in with that pattern. And then in verse 8, uh, this uh, river of living waters, this could fit either with the gospel time in which we live, or it could fit, or it still could fit with the last days, because we have the same type of thing in Revelation, talking about this river. And then uh, in verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth, and that day the Lord will be the only one. His name will be the only one. That sounds like something more final, or at least a foreshadowing of something more final. And then um, also in um, verse 11, there will be no more curse. That's, you know, again, we have that kind of language coming up in the book of Revelation. So I say it seems to me that there's allusions here to something final and ultimate. And we we have that in Scripture. And we've seen that in Zechariah. Many times there have been things that we've looked at in Zechariah that had reference to what was going to happen right then even. But it foreshadowed something later on. You see that in the other prophets. And uh, even uh, in the Gospels, you have the destruction of Jerusalem being talked about, but it seems to be foreshadowing something bigger that's coming. And so uh, I think that that, uh, many of these things here uh, foreshadow what's going to happen at the end time. On the other hand, let me say some other things here in the other direction. I find it very hard myself to believe that a lot of these things are meant physically. And let me give the reasons for that. Verse 8, for example. It will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Now, uh, this river of living water flowing out of Jerusalem is mentioned over and over in the prophets and in the book of Revelation. And it's very clear that it's not talking about a literal river. Uh, it's talking about symbolically about this river that will be for the healing of the nations. Um, a spiritual thing. You remember, we'll, we'll look at this, Lord willing, as we get into it. But you remember in Ezekiel, that river that flows out, wherever it goes, everything comes alive. And the river gets deeper as it goes. Those are symbolical pictures of the the spread of uh, the gospel and of uh, Uh, the salvation that's in Christ. Uh, So I don't believe that river is some physical river that that goes across there. When it's talking about it, it says it will be in winter and in summer. In other words, this won't dry up. It's never ending. Uh, Again, in verse 10, 
Jerusalem rises and all the land sinks out into a plain. You see that? All the land will be changed into a plain. And Jerusalem rises. I don't, I don't think that's talking about geographical changes in the land of Israel. And uh, the reason I don't is that we have the same language referred to concerning John the Baptist. Do you remember what it says? Uh, let me just read it to you in Isaiah. Concerning the coming of John the Baptist, this is what it says. <clears throat> A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Now that was the ministry of John the Baptist. He was preparing in the desert a highway for our God. It was not talking about a building project over in the Holy Land. It's talking about when he talks about every valley being exalted, that means those that are abased and beat down would be brought up. The humble, the brokenhearted would be bound up. Every mountain and hill made low. The haughty and the proud would be brought down, you see. And make straight, make a smooth path for the Lord. Well, that's what John the Baptist did, you see, metaphorically in his preaching. And we don't have to be in doubt about this because the New Testament quotes that. And so, what's it talking about here when it says, in that day, everything else is going to level out and Jerusalem will come up, will stand up above everything else? You see, God's talking about exalting His people uh, in that day. Uh, again, in verse uh, 15, I have a very hard time believing that any kind of literal, physical future army is going to be fighting using horses, mules, camels, and donkeys and cattle. That's not the, that they were not, that they would have those things in their camps. They, see, that's a that's a, a metaphorical way of God speaking of His judgment upon these uh, enemies that come up against His people. Um, it's been a long time since people have used camels and donkeys in warfare. Again, in verse 16, I have a hard time, verse 16, um, to say the least, I have a hard time believing that all nations are literally, physically going to go over to Jerusalem once a year. First of all, there's not room for them. But to go over there to celebrate a feast, literally, that Christ has abolished and fulfilled. The Feast of Tabernacles. He's already fulfilled that. Uh, it's a type. It's a picture. The Feast of Tabernacles was a picture. And finally, uh, I find it absolutely impossible myself to believe that in verse 21, uh, physical sacrifices will again be offered in a physical temple. To me, that seems like blasphemy. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. The idea, I mean, to anybody who has ever seen that all those blood sacrifices were as pictures of the ultimate one real sacrifice. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And the idea that for me as a Christian that I would ever offer a blood sacrifice, kill an animal when Christ has done all that already. It's unbelievable to even think in those terms. This is talking about something symbolical. And the temp what is the temple of the Lord? We're told very clearly in the New Testament, you are the temple of God and His Spirit dwells in you. So in other words, a lot of these things I think are symbolical. And we've tried to show in the past that uh, we're not playing fast and loose with Scripture in doing that because the New Testament itself does that, teaches us to do that. So, um, with that introduction then, let's consider this morning, begin to consider verses 1 to 9. As I said, uh, it seems to me that these verses at least foreshadow and find their ultimate fulfillment at the end of the New Testament age. God's enemies gathering against His people on a united front unleashed upon His people just before 
their final and complete destruction by God. That's what I think this is talking about. And there are several passages in the New Testament <clears throat> that seem to speak of this. Notice what he says here in verse 2. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Um, Matthew 24. Let's just look at several passages here. This final destruction of the enemies of God. Matthew 24 and verses 4 to 14. It seems that there's going to be a great intensifying of opposition to God and to His people right before the end comes. Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in My name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you. Now he's talking about Christians here. He's talking to his disciples. And will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, the love of the many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end Shall come. Now notice verse 9. You'll be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away. Many false prophets will arise. Lawlessness will be increased. The love of the many will grow cold. Sounds like he's talking about something getting worse right before the end. Now go on down here to verse uh, uh, 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Now he's been talking up above here about the destruction of Jerusalem, but I think it gets more than that. And let's just read on. Verse 22, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. If then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now the elect are there, and they're trying to mislead them. So here they are in the midst of this great tribulation that he talks about in verse 21. Verse 25, Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, there's this tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So again, this idea of all the nations gathered against God's people and uh, uh, in, an intensifying of opposition 
to God's people. Now, we have noticed uh, already, and back in just what we just finished in chapter 13, that God's people are always going through the fire. But it looks like the fire is going to get hotter towards the end. Uh, let's look at it again in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16 and verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. Isn't that a way of talking about it? But here again, this idea of all these kings of the whole world gathering together to come against God and to come against His people. And it's called the great day, the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked, and they see a shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, this is where all the multitudes of stuff about Armageddon come from. I just want to say a little bit about it to give you something to think about that maybe is more substantial than what you've heard about it over the years. Word, what should our minds go back to when we think about Armageddon or Megiddo? Well, if you go back to um, Judges, we'll just take a little time here to do this. And Judges... Um, Chapter 5, chapters 4 and 5. Um, if you remember, uh, there was, th this took place, well, let's read it in verse 19. Judges 5 19. Uh, this is this valley of Megiddo. Uh, 5.19, the kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away and so on. Now, let me just talk to you about the story. A lot of you remember this. But what happened was um, the people of God were in an impossible situation. They were under oppression. And uh, this uh, Sisera had 900 iron chariots. Uh, let's, let's look at that. In uh, uh, 4.3 it tells about it. It comes up several times. But the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. By contrast to that, um, verse 8 of chapter 5, look at this. New gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So a situation again where they were so oppressed, they'd take whenever an enemy would come in and take over the land, they'd take away their blacksmiths to keep them from making weapons. And uh, so you've got a situation of this very poorly equipped, to say the least, army trying to go against 900 iron chariots. In other words, you've got an impossible situation. That's what Megiddo ought to bring to our minds. An impossible situation in which 900 iron chariots are going up against a, a, a helpless people. 
And suddenly God intervenes supernaturally and grants deliverance just like that. Now that's what happened. You remember a woman ended up driving a tent peg through the head of this captain, uh, Sisera. And so um, he flees, goes to her tent, and Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, kills him. So in other words, when Megiddo comes to mind, you think of God giving a supernatural deliverance out of nowhere. That's what you ought to think of. That's the same type of thing that the Bible says repeatedly about what's going to happen in the end days. Look at the situation now. Where is God, you see? Where is God? What's He doing? Well, He's doing a lot compared to what it looks like He'll be doing in this situation where all these nations, where the whole world comes up against Christianity to destroy it. We haven't experienced quite that. And it looks hopeless. And men are saying, where is the promise of His coming? Everything continues the same way as it did from the beginning. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Christ appears and it's over. The battle's over and the enemies are destroyed. Now I think that's what's being talked about whenever he tells about this gathering. And look at this. In Revelation 16, these demons, uh, they're spirits of demons performing signs. Beloved, it's ta- it's, Satan, is, his power is still here. And it will be here. And he is going to, it specifically says, verse 14, uh, that uh, the powers that are wielded by these other powers, the dragon and uh, the false prophet and so on, uh, are actually demonic powers. They are spirits of demons performing signs. And uh, they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And then what's the Lord say? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. See, just like that, He's going to come. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megedon or Megiddo. So, um, sudden deliverance comes. Uh, One more look at this. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 7 to 9. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, you're getting ready for this big battle to take place, and then what happens? And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Just like that. Here's the whole world gathered together against the Lord, against the beloved city. And notice here, what's the beloved city? Well, it's Jerusalem, quote-unquote. But what is Jerusalem? It's the camp of the saints. That's what Jerusalem is identified with, the camp of the saints. You turn over here in chapter 20. 1, verse 9, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now the angel says, I want to show you the bride. Who's the bride? The church. I'll show you the bride. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. You see that? It's just as clear as it can be. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So the bride is identified here with this heavenly Jerusalem. What are we saying? Again, the idea of all the nations gathered together against God's people to try to destroy them. And when things are at their very worst, suddenly Christ comes and puts an end to it all. He comes, the Lord comes with all His holy ones. So... This is what I think we see here in Zechariah. I think that's what he's portraying in the language that he uses here is a day coming when everybody's gathered together against God's people and God suddenly intervenes. So the first thing we see foreshadowed 
is that the church is going to be going to face a great intensifying of opposition before the Lord's return and a final uprising of the powers of darkness in control of this world's powers. And I don't believe that we have seen that yet. Um, the church has seen some awful things down through the history of the church, but it looks like from the language of the Lord and these other passages that there's going to be one final all-out opposition against God right before Christ returns. Second thing I want us to notice briefly, back in Zechariah 14, notice this. God is the one ultimately in control of all this evil. Notice what he says in verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. God is the one doing it. He's the one in control of it. Remember there what we read in Revelation 20. It's God who releases Satan for a while that he might go out and do this final work of gathering the nations against God. Um, that Those passages we read in chapter 16 about these unclean spirits going out. God is in control of that to prepare and to gather this for this day of God, day of His judgment. Let's read one more in Revelation 19. I thought this was an amazing passage. Revelation 19 and verse 17. You understand that in Revelation, over and over, it brings us up to the last day and talks about this last great battle. Revelation 19 verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, <clears throat> Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Isn't that amazing? You see, God's in control of this. Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now, what's the great supper going to be? All oh, the flesh of all these kings. Verse 18, In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies, assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse, and against his army. You know, the vision here is of the Lord, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords riding on this uh, horse. Verse uh, 11, I saw heaven open a white horse. He who sat upon it called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems. Uh, he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Again, symbolical. Beloved, this is symbolical. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says about him, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Do you think that Christ has a sword coming out of his mouth? He doesn't. It's a picture. It's symbolical. It's not the idea of somebody with a sword coming out of their mouth riding on a literal horse. It's talking about a, a, a time of confrontation and uh, judgment, a final judgment of the enemies of God. And so verse 19 I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse, that is Christ, and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Do you see the idea? Men rise up in the end to do their worst against God and against His church. And God is the one that's in control of it all. He's the one that's gathering them together so that they can be destroyed. 
And you know, you remember what Jesus said, when you see all these things come to pass, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. When it looks like everything's getting worse, I wonder what it'll be like. You know, remember what the Lord said, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? I mean, it's not going to be easy to believe God when it looks like all the, all the whole world is gathering together in unison to destroy Christianity. And that's the very thing God is working Himself, and He's setting it up for His great feast. He's telling these birds, come to My supper, I'm getting ready. Well, that's the very same thing that we see here in Zechariah. God gathers them together. Um, it used to trouble me in Revelation 13. Um, let me just read this. Well, you can turn to it if you want. Revelation 13. This... Uh, this beast, it says in verse 4, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast and who's able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. And his tabernacle, who's that? What is that? What's his tabernacle? That is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him, verse 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That used to bother me. Given to him to overcome the saints. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. What's it mean? I think it just means this. It's not talking about Christians being personally defeated by the devil, but it was given to him to, to bring all kinds of opposition, persecution, and setbacks upon the church of God to overcome them. We're going to see terrible things happen to the church. And it has happened in, in many countries. I mean, in our day, and this is the thing that's so hard for us to realize, in, our, in this century, more Christians martyred than in any other century. And I, actually, I think it's true all through church history, all of church history equal to this century. But suppose we see the church suffer terrible setbacks. It's just for a short time it's been given to him to do that. And then destruction you see, his final destruction. God's in control of it all. The final thing here then, um, I know this has been a little disjointed, but we're trying to introduce the whole thing. Final thing from Zechariah 14. Opposition will increase. God's in control of it. And the final thing, which I've already mentioned, our deliverance will be sudden and supernatural. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Now, He's the one that gathered them. He's going to go forth and fight against them. As when He fights on a day of battle, and in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, and then in the end of verse 5, Then the Lord, O oh my God, will come, and all the holy ones with Him. Whether this means that Christ will literally return in the Mount of Olives, I don't know. That's what a lot of people believe. It is where He ascended. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. If that's what it means, you know, I don't. it doesn't bother me if you take it that way. But the idea of this mountain splitting and all that, I think that's talking about, it's just this. The thing that was the main opposition to their escape and deliverance was this mountain that was blocking the way out of there. And that mountain splits and he says, you'll flee through the valley. In other words, he's going to remove the number one thing that was hemming them in and make it so that they can escape, just like that, when he returns. The Lord will return and all his holy ones with him. Our deliverance, I don't know whether he'll literally come to the Mount of Olives, but I do know this, when he comes, just like that, our deliverance will be complete. And... Uh, it will be supernatural. Let's just look at, a, in closing, just look at two or three passages on this. Second Thessalonians. 
Second Thessalonians chapter one. And verse 6. After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The Lord will come and his holy ones with him, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. You remember in Matthew 25, 31, He says, When the Son of Man comes, in the glory of His Father and all the holy angels with him. Let me just read it to you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, maybe we ought to just close with this one. 2 Thessalonians 2, Verse 1, he says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who exalts, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way, and then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. There's that sword. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Just like that, you see, the deliverance. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. You see, there's God gathering the nations against himself so that he might destroy them in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. And hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So, uh, here again in Second Thessalonians, we see that God is in control. And even though uh, there will be false wonders and signs and all kinds of deception in the whole world going after falsehood, and deception. Nevertheless, God's in control of it all. And uh, in the proper time, the Lord will slay all opposition with the breath of His mouth and bring it to an end by the appearance of His coming. I think surely these verses in Zechariah 14 mean at least this. They're a foreshadowing of things that we have repeated in the New Testament. The same themes come up again and again.
So we have the idea of great opposition, God in control of it, so that He might finish His work. And what a blessed thing it is to think of that. I mean, if things get much, 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 much worse for the church, it doesn't matter. God's the one in control. And at the proper time, He's going to bring about His deliverance. Well, I don't know. That may be There may be a lot of new thoughts here for some of you. Uh, but you can take these and weigh them. And uh, may the Lord... Help us to get the things that we need to get from these um, scriptures that He's given to us for our edification, our upbuilding. Well, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that um, this verse says that You were the ones that gathered You were the one that gathered these nations. And we think of this uh, repeated theme in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation and how You even call the birds of the heavens to Your great supper. And uh, this is amazing. And Lord, we pray You'd help us to remember um, when the wicked seem to be triumphing that it's only that they might be destroyed. And... uh, We pray You'd help us to trust You and to rest in the fact that You're in control. We think of many situations down through the history of the church where things looked impossible and You intervened. Think of just uh, in recent years what You did there in the Soviet Union where it looked like there was death and bloodshed and persecution for everyone who believed in You. And uh, the next thing we know, the whole Soviet Union has collapsed. All of these things are little pictures of what will happen at the end time, where things, where it seems like the whole world has kind of risen up against you and against your truth. And every scoffer saying, "What? Well, where's God?" And uh, suddenly you'll intervene. And uh, we just pray you'd help us to. As the Lord Jesus said, when you see all these bad things happening, when you see everything that looks discouraging taking place, lift up your heads. Uh, that These are good signs. These are the evidence of God uh, getting ready to move on behalf of His name and His people. We thank You for these Scriptures that You've given to us that we might have comfort, consolation, and faith. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Let's be dismissed and we'll continue our fellowship together in mealtime. Anybody has any questions about any of these things or um, different ideas that you want to share? Well, please feel free to talk to me.